Well, as you know, we've been in a uh, little mini-series talking about leaving our mark in this world, and we did six studies in that. And before that, we had Christmas. And before that, we had a couple speakers. And so it was all the way back, I think, in November. The end of November was our last message in Romans. And we covered Romans chapter 8, verse 28. And I kind of hated to leave you hanging all that time, but we're back in Romans now. And so um, we'll be in this book up to maybe a couple weeks before Easter. We'll do a couple Easter things and then back into Romans again. So you can continue to read uh, ahead. Uh, But I just want to read our text for this morning out of Romans chapter 8, beginning in verse 28. And I want to read the context. We're just going to focus on verse 29 this morning. But um, I want to read the context of verses 28 through verse 30. So beginning in verse 28, Paul writes, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purpose. For those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified. And those whom he justified, he also glorified. Um, Just to give you a little review of where we were the last time we were in Romans. Today we're looking at this verse 29. And we want to talk about this week and probably next week, keys to our security in Christ. So this is the first part of a couple-part message We'll see how the time goes. But the last time we taught on Romans, we were in verse 28, and we talked about a couple things. We talked about, first of all, the confidence that we have, because Paul says there, and we know. And it also carries the meaning that we can know. In other words, sometimes we forget things as Christians. We forget things in the middle of trials and tribulations, and we need to be reminded that, you know what, God is working all these things for our good. And so we can have confidence in that. We also looked at the scope of it. It talked about that word good there. And uh, it's it's something that is morally or uh, inherently good. All right? And we, we talked a little bit about that. God's attributes, God's promises, God's word, prayer, angels, fellow Christians. All those things are good. And he takes all those things and he begins to use some of the bad things in our lives to work out for our good. Things like suffering, things like temptation, even things like our own sin. God can take it and turn it around for his good. That's a wonderful truth that I rejoice in because sometimes we all do stupid things, right? (laughs) We all sin in a myriad of ways, probably each and every day, every week. And it's nice to know that even within God's plan, within God's purpose for our life. He even takes that. He doesn't make us do that. He's not the author of sin, but he allows for it clearly because we're still left in this sinful body, in this sinful world. And as Christians, our sins are forgiven for all eternity, but we still fall. We still sin. And that's First John 1, 9, that we can go to God, confess our sins, say the same thing that God says about our sins and know that he is just and he will forgive us our sins and cleanse us from all unrighteousness. What a wonderful truth. And then we looked at the beneficiaries of this promise in in verse 28. And basically it boiled down to two, kind of, he used two 
ways to describe those who love God and those who are called. And that message is on the, online there. And obviously, the origin of all this comes from God because it works together according to his purpose, not our own purpose. Now, I just want to say, before we actually dive into verse 29 this morning, that the next couple of weeks, we're going to be looking into a lot of uh, things that are very hard to understand. <laughs> Trust me, I've been trying to understand them all week. Okay. Uh, it's difficult. So you've got to put your thinking caps on. You know, it's not going to do you any good to stay up till 3 o'clock on Saturday night and then come in here and, oh, I hope the pastor's got something good for you. You're just going to check out, man. You'll be snoring, okay? You, you just can't handle it. I mean, it's, it's, just, it's just way too much because, you know what, we're going to be looking into God's purpose. We're going to be looking into the mind of God himself. We're going to be looking into our wonderful salvation. And some of these things we just won't be able to understand in our logic So you're going to have to kind of set aside your reason, set aside your logic, set aside your human wisdom, because we're going to be plunging into some truths that are really unfathomable. Um, And I don't say that to scare you. I say that to excite you, because this is God's word that we're reading. You know, and, and it's kind of exciting when we can take his word and we can grapple with it and, and come to an understanding of what he means. But I also want to give you a little warning because what tends to happen a lot of times when we come across some of the truths that we're going to be looking at in the next couple of weeks is when you reach this stage of theological truth, because our mind just can't comprehend it. We don't have the mind of God. Um, We can't comprehend it with our own minds, and we have a hard time understanding what God is teaching us through his word. What we tend to do is we try to figure out a way around the truth that's presented. In other words, we see a truth and we go, well, that couldn't be that. It couldn't really mean that. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't fit in my pea brain logic. So it must mean this. And we begin to reinterpret what the original meaning of the scripture is was. So we have to be careful with that. Um, We also, if you go down that road, the natural progression is something like this. Pretty soon you're beginning to think, well, you know what? If this is true, um, if this really means what it says, then what kind of God is this? And you start to question God. You start to question God's motive. You start questioning God's intent. And you begin to say, well, somehow God hasn't, you know, has he made this terrible mistake? Is this something that's wrong that we're reading in God's word? Or even worse, is is, is God not just? Because it doesn't seem just in our logic. What this truth teaches us, it doesn't seem right. And see, at that point, you have to be careful because at that point, you are concluding that your mind is above the mind of God. See, just because there's truths in scriptures that our mind can't comprehend, that doesn't mean they're not true, beloved. That just means that God's ways are not what? Our ways, right? His thoughts are not our thoughts. We don't get to question his 
intent or his motive or cast ill will at God because simply we can't understand something about him or the way he does things or his purposes or his plans. And that's what happens with some people. They come to certain theological truths and they just either check out or they just skip over it or they just say, you know what, if that's true, man, I don't want to know that God. There's something wrong with that kind of God. Well, verses 29 through 30, uh, along with verse 33 and a lot of chapter 9 once we get into that, we're going to be looking into some doctrines, beloved, that quite frankly have caused much confusion in the church, have caused divisions in churches, have caused major just you know, ramifications once people begin to grapple with these. Because these are heavy doctrinal issues. This isn't Cheerios. Okay, this is steak and eggs. In all honesty, that's really what it is. And it's going to take a lot of all of us to weave our way through these next several chapters in Romans. Because we're going to deal with things like foreknowledge, predestination, effectual calling, election, if you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you know all those things are hot, hot topics. <laughs> you realize, boy, you start talking about election, man, you've got to be careful. I say that to say this, to avoid these doctrines would be even a greater injustice than to try to just kind of bring them down to our level. So we're going to take this head on. And it's an approach that Paul took. Because you have to remember, when Paul was writing this letter here to the Romans, he didn't write it as a textbook. He didn't write to a bunch of seminary students. He didn't write it so, oh, I know one day, boy, the theologians in the seminaries are going to sit around and, and talk about this. That was not his intent. He didn't write it as a thesis. His, his aim really was one of, of a pastor. His aim was very practical. Romans was aimed at common people in the church of Rome. And just to give you an idea, some of these people were uneducated slaves. So Paul in no way is putting the cookies on the top shelf here. He's trying to bring them down to the lowest shelf possible while still grappling with some of these truths that God has presented for us here through the Apostle Paul. Paul wanted to give his saints in Rome, these saints in Rome, an understanding of God, of his salvation. And he knew that they needed that understanding because, you know what, they were going to need to be comforted. They were going to be needed to be filled with hope in the midst of some very difficult situations that they were going through. And you know what? There's no doubt here today, some of you are going through some very difficult trials, some very difficult cage-rattling issues are going on in your life. And maybe nobody else even knows about it. That's okay, because you know what? God knows. And, and I'm just here to tell you, Paul wrote this letter with you in mind, with the idea that, you know what? You're going to need comfort when the trials come. And all you have to do is read the paper and listen to the news. Trust me, trials are on the way. Some of these Christians here in Rome would even face severe persecution, even martyrdom. They would be called upon to give up their life for Christ. And in verse 37 of chapter 8, he wants them to understand. It says, now in all these things we are more than what? 
conquerors through him who loved us. He wants them to understand that with all their heart. Because that's the only thing that's going to get them through it. Well, how could they trust God and believe in his love when all these horrible things are happening to them? Either in reality or potentially happening to them in the future. See, Paul wanted them and us, by inference, to know that we can bank our lives on the fact that God is working all these things, the good, the bad, and the ugly, for good. For us, because our salvation is part of his eternal purpose to exalt his son. Anybody here that has email, you've gotten the email. Someone in Nigeria wants to bequeath you $14 million. And all you have to do, real simple, just give them your name, maybe social security number, your account number. And they're going to deposit that $14 million in your account. People have actually done this. So if you're, if you're here and you've done this, I'm sorry. But people have actually done this. Because they thought it was a promise. They thought, wow, this is, oh man. Some people that actually did this started living like a millionaire. Only to go to the ATM and find out they had nothing left. <laughs> Because it was all cleaned out. Now, if we acted on that promissory email that we got from some gentleman in Nigeria somewhere, and we began to live like this was true, you would probably want that person committed. You would say, well, they have sanity problems here. I mean, who would believe such a thing? If you're going to bank our lives on such promises, the key is this. You better make sure that they're true. So how can you know that Paul's promise in verse 28, that God causes all things to work together for good to those who love God and to those who are called according to his purpose. How do you know that's true? And what Paul is about to do, he's going to show us why that promise is true. That verse explains why as believers we can endure the present sufferings with hope, with future glory that's going to be revealed as he's talked about in verse 18 there of of Romans 8. Because we know that God will work everything together for our ultimate eternal good and for his glory. But let me ask you this. What if that promise is about as likely to come true as the the guy, the email from the guy from Nigeria who wants to give you $14 million? See, you can only bank your life on Romans 8.28 if you know for certain that it's true. That is so key. And so, I want you to understand, today we want to look at, we know that God works all things together for good for us because our salvation is part of his eternal purpose to glorify his son. That's basically encapsulates verse 29 there. Now, verse 29 tells us what good means that we find in verse 28. The good that God is working toward us through all of our trials is that we are ultimately conformed to the image of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ. Now, 
the ultimate reason that God is working all things together to conform us to the image of Jesus Christ, hold on to your seats. It's not about you. It's not about you. It's not about me. Now, that may shock you. But you know what? God did not save you or me to make much about us. That's not why he saves us. Rather, he saved you so that Christ, he tells us in verse 29, would be the firstborn among many brethren. God saved you so that you would make much about his son. That's why he saved you. Now, that's hard to get through our me, my, myself mentality, but that's what Scripture says. Our salvation is all about the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's not about us. And it's unfortunate the church has turned it right around on its heels and made it all about us. And see, because our salvation is bound up with God's eternal purpose to make much about Jesus Christ... That's what allows this promise to be secure. Now, there's a lot of confusion today in the world, in the church especially. Years people have debated this topic, and we'll be getting more into this in the weeks ahead. Can a Christian lose their salvation? If you're genuinely saved, can you lose your salvation? I would say perhaps probably more than any other single doctrine, eternal security has been dividing the church from the very beginning. And it's it's so sad when you see that because, I mean, when I read the pages of Scripture, beloved, I see security of salvation everywhere. I can't turn a page without finding it. And especially in Romans 8. Other texts discuss the security of the believer, but none as pointedly as Romans 8. And verses 28 to 30 are among one of the clearest passages that you're ever going to find on eternal security. Everyone who has been redeemed by Jesus Christ, without exception, what this text teaches will be glorified. Period. There's no if, and, or buts. All believers have the assurance that everything works together for their good so that nothing can work against them that could make them lose their salvation. Those who are justified will indeed be glorified one day. That's a a wonderful truth as a believer to rejoice in. But... I want to clarify this a little bit because we saw here in Romans 8, 28 that it says we're forever secure because that's God's purpose. And then verse 29 to 30 explain God's purpose. See, God causes all things to work together for the believer's good because that's the way he wants it. There's no other explanation. See, God is absolutely free to make whatever decision he wants to And nothing can change that. In Ephesians, 
Chapter 1, verse 4. It says, He has chosen us in him before the foundation of the world that we should be holy and without blame before him. Predestined, predestined us unto the adoption of sons by Jesus Christ to himself according to the good pleasure of his will. You know what? This is hard to understand, and this may bring bristles up on the back of your neck, but you're not a Christian because of something you decided, but because something God decided. It's very clear in Scripture. I know that goes against what we want to hear, but that's what the Scripture teaches. Over in Hebrews chapter 6, verse 17 to 18, it talks about our security and that it does not depend on our ability to stay saved, but rather upon God's ability to keep his promise. Hebrews 6 says, so when God desired to show more convincingly to the heirs of the promise, the unchangeable character of his purpose, he guaranteed it with an oath. Verse 18 of chapter 6, Hebrews, so that by two unchangeable things in which it is impossible for God to lie, we who have fled for refuge, might have strong encouragement to hold fast to the hope set before us. God planned to redeem us. John chapter 1, verse 12 to 13 says, But to all who did receive him, who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God who were what? Born. How? Not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man. <laughs> I mean, you can't get any clearer, but of God. We need to receive Christ. But it's God who originates that new birth. And, and much of contemporary evangelism today, Dave's going to be doing an evangelism class in the, uh, probably in April sometime on Saturdays for a couple weeks. Dave Bullen, I, I, when we have a sign-up, I encourage you to sign up for that. Um, we'll figure out the times and everything. But, but it's, it's going to be a wonderful class. And you know what? I mean, we have to have people come to the understanding, especially Christians, that it wasn't your decision. It wasn't your decision. It was his How could ever anyone decide for God on his own? 1 Corinthians chapter 2, verse 14 says, The natural man receives not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 4 says, The God of this world has blinded the minds of them who believe not, lest the light of the glorious gospel of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine unto them. Ephesians 2, chapter 1 tells us very clearly that man is ignorant, man is in darkness, man is actually dead in trespasses and sin. In his natural state, we can never muster up enough of whatever it takes to turn and to follow God. It's just not going to happen. God must always make the first move. He purposes to save us in eternity past, to redeem us for the eternity future. And you know what? In between, there's no loss of salvation. Our salvation is secure because it's something that God has purposed to do. And I think that God is powerful enough if he can create everything we've seen around us in six days, literally by speaking, that's pretty much, that's a lot of power. 
So I'm not going to argue with that. God is, is working all these trials in our lives, great, small, together for our ultimate good. And what this means is that we can build upon this promise that we're given in Romans 8.28. But we have to do so in a way that makes sense. So when we come to verse 29, we see here the purpose of our salvation. Verse 29, at the end it says, to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among the brethren. God's eternal purpose is not ultimately about us, but about the preeminence of Christ. And, and that's hard for us sometimes to understand. It's hard sometimes for us to comprehend, but that doesn't mean it's not true. I mean, we're taught, well, I thought God loves us, and he has a wonderful plan for our life. Well, he does. He does love us. He does have a plan and purpose for your life. But that's not the main reason he sent his son to die on the cross. Why thought God wanted us to be happy? He wants us to be happy. But he also wants us to be holy. God sent his son to save us, to make us holy, to make us happy in him so that our lives will glorify him. Not only in this life, but throughout all eternity. John Piper often quotes, he says this, God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. If you've ever read anything or heard John Piper, he always works that in there. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. And see, what Paul is doing here in verse 29, he's beginning to show us our salvation, which results in us being conformed to the image of his son, is all about Christ and him being firstborn among the brethren. So he says he wants to conform us to Christ. He says we've been called according to God's purpose, and his purpose is to make us like Christ. See, it's impossible, beloved. It's, it's so impossible to become saved and never become like Jesus Christ. That's just not going to happen. God promised glorification. Heaven, the forgiveness of sin, the gifts of love and joy and peace and wisdom, all those are just products, mere byproducts of our salvation. The main reason God saved us was to conform us to the image of his son. God is redeeming us for all eternity to be holy, to be Christ-like, to be glorified. To be a community of people that will, will give him praise and honor. And when you become a Christian, that's when this process begins. It doesn't happen overnight. That's what sanctification is all about. Living our Christian lives out in this body of flesh down here on this sinful earth. Each day striving to be more like Christ. Each day striving to give more of the spirit yielded in our lives. And that process is going to be fulfilled because it's God's holy purpose. Romans 8, 17 says that because we are children of God, we are heirs of God. And listen to this, joint heirs with Christ. We're connected at the hip. 
with the Son of God. We are made sons of God so that we might be heirs and that our inheritance is to be like Christ and to inherit all that belongs to him. The teaching that that people can lose their salvation is is unbiblical because God's purpose in salvation is to conform us to the image of Christ, not just save you from hell. Now that that word there in the Greek, to be conformed, means means this. It means to bring to the same form. We will be made into the same form as Christ. Isn't that a crazy thought? One day we will be like Christ. First of all, bodily. Philippians chapter 3 verse 21 says that the Lord shall change our lowly body that it may be fashioned like his glorious body. Outwardly, we will be conformed to the post-resurrected body that our Lord had. Now, we're not all going to look like Jesus. We're not going to have, you know, millions of Jesus running around and, you know, with beards. We're not gonna, that's not what we're going to look like. We're going to look like ourselves. But we're going to be in a body much like his glorified body. Our bodies work in the same way. They work in the same environment. They work by the same principles. And when we go to glory, we're going to receive these glorious bodies that operate in the same environment and by the same principles as the resurrected, glorified body of Christ. That's what you have to look forward to. But not only bodily will we, will we, will we be conformed, but also spiritually. The Bible says spiritually we'll be like Christ. We will be perfect inwardly, not just outwardly. Residing in us will be the very holiness of of Jesus Christ himself. The divine, incorruptible nature that he gave us at our redemption will be freed from this fleshly body. We shall be delivered, as Romans 8.21 says, from the bondage of the corruption into the glorious liberty of the children of God. See, God predestined us to be conformed to the image of in the original language, that's the word icon. Same, sounds like our word. We use icon, right? Icon is what? It's a statue. It's made to look like someone or something. The likeness, the likeness is not incidental. It's not accidental. It's calculated. It's crafted. It's a replicated image. Icon is a word used of a son who is the image of his father. It's used that way in Hebrews 1, 3, where it describes God's Son as the express image of his person. In 1 John 3, 2, John tells us that when Christ appears, we shall be like him, for we shall see him as he is. Paul said in 2 Corinthians 3, 18, with all, uh, we all with unveiled face beholding in a mirror the glory of the Lord are changed into the same image from glory to glory, even as the spirit of the Lord, even as by the spirit of the Lord. See, when you came to Christ, your spiritual blindness ended. And you began to see the glory of God. And so you move from one level of glory to the next. You become more and more and more like Christ each and every day. 
He's conforming us. Well, he also says here he wants to make us preeminent or to make Christ preeminent. That's part of this plan, to make Christ preeminent. See, with our conformity to Christ, it's, it's, it's vital to God's purpose. But it's really secondary to the ultimate purpose that Christ might be the firstborn among many brethren. I just want to spend a little time here because some people misunderstand this. This is a reference to preeminence, not chronology. When we hear firstborn, we think time. Mark that out of your heads. This does not mean that Jesus, as God's son, had a beginning. And that there was a time when he was not. Because it says firstborn. The main idea of firstborn in the Jewish culture was that when someone was born first, he had supremacy or preeminence over his brother. See, now, if we're in a family and, and say, uh, mom and dad pass on and they leave an estate or something, well, what do you do? I know in our family, they did divvied it up. They divided it up. There's nine of us, so it wasn't that great, but it was all right. <laughs> it got me through college. <laughs> Praise God. But see, in the Jewish culture, when someone died, it went to the firstborn, period. And if he wanted to give it to his brothers and sisters, he could, but he didn't have to. See, he uniquely represented the dignity of his family, and he carried the family name. He was the preeminent one in that family. The firstborn son inherited special rights and privileges. In Corinthians chapter 1, verse 15, Paul calls Jesus the firstborn of all creation. Now, this doesn't mean that Jesus was created first, obviously. doesn't mean that. That's what the Jehovah Witnesses teach. We know it doesn't mean that because he existed before creation. He created all things. He goes on and he explains that. Verse 17 of Colossians 1, Paul says that Christ is before all things. Meaning that he pre-existed all things. See, by the firstborn of all creation, what Paul means here is that Jesus Christ has supremacy over all creation as the rightful Lord because he made it. He's the one that created it. Paul goes on to say in Colossians 1.18 that he's also the head of the body, the church, and he's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, so that he himself will not come to have first place in everything. That he will have first place in everything. Excuse me. So Jesus is the sovereign over the church. He's sovereign over this creation. And his resurrection was the first of its kind. You say, well, wait a minute. Wasn't Jesus raised, or Lazarus raised from the dead? Yeah, but he kind of got a bum deal. I mean, he had to die again. I mean, I don't know about you, but I'm not looking forward to dying. But I mean, think if you had to look forward to dying twice, okay? I mean, I get it. He was raised. That was a glorious miracle, but... Um, but Jesus' resurrection was the first in which the resurrected person received a new indestructible body, which is the, basically the prototype of the bodies we will receive one day. And when we re- receive those bodies, we will be forever singing the praises of Jesus Christ who died for us, whom God highly exalted. And this is God's purpose. And God will achieve his purpose. That Jesus will be the firstborn, the supreme over all. 
But Paul also adds there that Jesus will be the firstborn among many brethren. Charles Spurgeon taught on this, and he just, I'm just going to read to you what he, what he said. He said, first of all, when he, when he talked about the idea of, of predestination and the preeminence of Christ, all this stuff, he said, first of all, God predestinates us to be like Jesus, that his dear son might be the first in an order of beings, elevated above all the creatures and nearer to God than any other existence. And he goes on to explain that we will be closer to God than even the angels are because we're his sons and his daughters. Secondly, Spurgeon says this, the object of grace is that there may be some in heaven with whom Christ can hold brotherly converse. That's not my name. I mean, that is my name, but that's, it just means fellowship. The Lord saved us so that we could have one day fellowship with him, not only for a certain time, but for all of eternity. And he adds this, what bliss to know that he who is the very God of very God and sits on the eternal throne is also the same nature with ourselves, our kinsmen, who is not ashamed even amidst the royalties of glory to call us brethren. We're talking about Christ. The third thing he said was this, God was so well pleased with his son and saw such beauties in him that he determined to multiply his image. I just can't have one. Kind of like a Lay's potato chip, you know. You like those? I like those. See, we're going to be conformed to the image of Jesus Christ. And this implies that Jesus, the second Adam succeeded where the first Adam failed, one commentator points out. God created man to bear his image, but that image was defaced when Adam sinned. But through all eternity, the perfect image of God will be restored and reflected in us who are in Christ, whom God predestined to the adoption as sons, to the praise of the glory of his grace. So it's, it's, it's a very important thing, but it's also very practical. It's practical because it helps us see that God's eternal purpose is not ultimately about us, but rather about the preeminence of Christ. God saved us to make us like Christ. So there will be a redeemed, glorified humanity over which Christ will reign supreme. Philippians chapter 2, verses 9 to 10, Paul says, writes this, God has exalted Christ and given him a name which is above every name, that at the name of Jesus, what? Every knee should bow. He wants to bring to heaven a redeemed humanity that will spend all of eternity glorifying the preeminent Christ. Colossians 1.18 declares that Christ is the head of the body of the church, who's the beginning, the firstborn from the dead, and all those things that he might have preeminence. The purpose of our salvation is so that Christ may be glorified. The progress of our salvation, moving on, kind of jumping back. We're kind of doing this verse in, re- in reverse. We looked at the last half of the verse. Now we're going back to the first part. The progress of our salvation, verse 29 there, God's eternal purpose to glorify Jesus Christ includes our salvation. That's a good thing. (laughs) 
See, we must see that our salvation is in the context of God's greater purpose to glorify his son. A purpose that cannot fail. Because if that purpose fails, then God fails. And if God fails, God is not God. (laughs) So we have a real problem then. God is an active subject in all of the verbs in verses 29 to 30. It says he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, and he will glorify or glorified, actually past tense, in the text. Leon Morris, a wonderful commentator, he has a wonderful commentary on the book of Romans. He wrote this. He said, Paul is saying that God is the author of our salvation and that from beginning to end, We are not to think that God can take action only when we graciously give him permission. Paul is saying that God initiates the whole process. See, in other words, I want you to see this clearly. God wouldn't leave his eternal purpose to glorify his son in the hands of us. (laughs) Fickle sinners. It would never happen. Rather... He takes the initiative. He ensures that this complete process will not fail. And that there's five things here that we're going to be looking at over the next couple weeks. This is often by commentators called the golden chain of redemption. Where he foreknew, he predestined, he called, he justified, he glorified. Five keys in the unfolding plan of salvation. See, I'm, I'm firmly convinced in this. That if you, in a fuller way, understand your salvation in Christ, that, that will just give you confidence in your Christian life each and every day. You know, because you don't have to go to bed at night with your head on the pillow thinking, man, am I going to make it? Because you realize, you know what, it's not up to you to make it. This is something that God has planned out. He's purposed and that he saved you. Five keys in the unfolding plan of salvation. Our our salvation began when God foreknew us. The first one is foreknowledge. We're only going to get to two of these today, maybe. Foreknowledge. He says there, whom he did foreknow. See, God's redemptive plan began with his foreknowledge. That's the order in which we find it in the text. And this is really a key term to understand because it's the beginning of the whole process. But there's a lot of controversy. There's a lot of what you might say misunderstanding over the meaning of this word. Some people say, well, what, what it means to foreknow something is that when God foreknew, it means that God knows everything in advance. Is that true? Sure. That's a true statement. And thus God foreknew who would believe in Jesus. And because he foreknew who would believe in Jesus, those are the ones he predestined. See, some who hold that view say that God predestined individuals based on foreseeing their faith. It goes like this. God looked down through the corridors of time, and he saw one day, 1979, April, whatever it was, on a Wednesday night, Steve Converse is going to give his life to Christ. Therefore, based on Steve Converse's decision in April, 1979, I have to choose him in eternity past. Bizarre, but people believe that. Other people say that it's a group thing, that God predestined the church as a group of believers to salvation. 
But it's up to the free will and those individuals in the group to come to him. See, in either case, the progress is triggered not by God's sovereign choice, but rather by God's knowledge of the choices of the people who would make a decision according to their own free will. So you take the initiative of salvation and you say, well, now it rests with man. It doesn't rest with God anymore because it's not based on what God wants. It's based on what you want because you're the one that chose him. Except that God sent Jesus to make salvation available to all. Wow. See, there's, there's a lot of problems here. First of all, the theology behind that view is at odds with most of Scripture, including our context here today. It would mean that God made up his eternal purpose based on what sinners would choose to do rather than on what God would choose to do. I don't know about you, but I love you, but I think I'm going to stick with God on this one. Okay, that's just my, my opinion, and you probably feel the same way. So that view would make man sovereign, not God. Salvation would not be according to, as we read earlier, God's calling or God's purpose, but rather according to man's will. But God didn't look down through history to see what Paul would do, what Paul would choose to believe him, he didn't go, whoa, man, I'm glad that guy chose me. Man, he was a bad dude. Now, once he chose me, now, now he's going to make a good apostle. You know, he turned around and he's a good guy now. I'll make him one of my elect based on his choice of me. It's just bizarre. I mean, when you read the story of the conversion of Paul, you, you see if that interpret fits. It doesn't. It's clear that God chose Paul to save Paul because God had a sovereign purpose for Paul's life. Galatians 1.15. See, if foreknowledge only means that God knew in advance who would believe, and thus he elected them, then he did not purpose to save a single person for glory. How could he? Because they hadn't chosen him yet. You know, they, they, they kind of, you look at it this way, it's kind of like, you know, he just saw how the parade would go and then he jumped in the front of the parade. You know, have you ever had a parade down here? I remember one year they had the parade down there. I don't know if it was a Christmas parade, or the 4th of July parade. But one year, went down there early. And I remember on one of the streets, all these people were lined up and had their chairs out and everything. Well, you know what? The parade wasn't going down that street. <laughs> Just because they were lined up on that, you know, they thought, oh, we got great seats. Now they didn't have any seats at all. You know, they had changed the route somehow, and these people got the old memo instead of the new memo. They had all their stuff set up, and I remember the police coming, hey, what are you, what are you doing? You know, this is, it's not, it's a block over, you know, and everybody scurried. You know, just because they decided to plant themselves there didn't dictate the parade came down in front of them. There had to be planning. And that's the same the way it is with our salvation. The Bible is very clear that God determined the parade route in advance. One commentator put it this way, we are called according to purpose, not according to foreknowledge. Hence, foreknowledge is included in the electing purpose. Also, the view that foreknowledge simply means that God knew in advance those who would choose him goes against what Paul said in Romans chapter 3, verses 10 to 18, that no one seeks God. No one. 
Romans 8.8, those who are in the flesh cannot please God, which includes faith in Christ, Hebrews 11.6. See, so if it were a matter of, of God foreseeing what men would do, he would see that none would believe. The Bible repeatedly shows that all of salvation, including the the spiritual understanding, the repentance, the faith necessary for salvation, it's God's gift. Verse after verse after verse. It's grace. It's God's unmerited favor. If it were conditioned on our faith, it would be based on some good in us, of which we have none. If we could take credit for our spiritual insight or, or repentance or faith, I mean, think about it. I mean, what would heaven be like? How'd you get here? Oh, man, I just, you know, energized my faith. And, you know, I did this and I I believe this. And I, boy, we'd be bragging up a storm in heaven. There's no reason to boast in our salvation. We boast in but the cross. So to say that for no means that God foresaw who or of their own free will would choose to believe in Jesus goes against the very biblical theology of salvation itself. And there's, there's other reasons. The second reason is to reject that interpretation is the biblical usage of the word. There's only two times in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, Acts 26.5 and 2 Peter 3.17 when men are the subject of the verb that means to know in advance. Only two times. But when God is the subject, to foreknow means to choose or to determine beforehand, often with the sense of entering into a relationship with before. It means that before time began, God chose to set his love on some whom he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, He isn't said here to foreknow what people will do, but rather to foreknow the people themselves. Our salvation is a personal salvation. Romans 11, 2, with reference to the Jews, Paul says this, God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. In Amos chapter 3, verse 2, God says to Israel, You only have I known of all the families of the earth. God obviously knows everybody. He's omniscient. But he chose to set his love on Israel. In Jeremiah 1.5, the Lord tells the prophet, Before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. And before you were born, I consecrated you. I have appointed you a prophet to the nations. Before you were even born, this happened. And there are other references to the word no. We just don't have time to go in them. But God knows in advance everyone who has ever lived. But some he chooses to foreknow in love. Doesn't just mean that God knew in advance. But that he planned. He purposed. It includes his foresight. A couple things that foreknowledge includes. Some people assume foreknowledge is the same as foresight. It's not. They envision God in heaven looking into the future with binoculars, seeing those people who would believe. It includes foresight. See, 
if he sees you will believe, he chooses you. That's the idea behind their theology. If he sees you won't, well, then he won't choose you. God does have foresight, beloved. He can see everything that will happen ever in the future, in all eternity. He knows exactly what people will do. But our salvation is based not just on God's foresight into some individual decisions that people make. I mean, think about it. Why did God create unbelievers? If that were the case, just believing that God knew who would and who would not accept Jesus Christ doesn't explain why God would allow people to go to hell. Some will say, well, it's his, his choice to send people to hell. You don't find that in the Bible. He knows it's going to happen, so he, he sends them there. No. People go to hell because of their rejection of salvation. They reject the only name who can offer them forgiveness. So how does a sinner obtain saving faith? God knows what's going to happen in the future. That doesn't explain how sinners get saved. How does a person who's dead in sin, blinded by Satan, unable to understand anything having to do with God, continuously filled with evil, how do they suddenly exercise saving faith? One commentator said, A corpse could sooner come out of the grave and walk. Then that happened. It also includes foreordination. God's foreknowledge is not a reference to his omniscient foresight, but to his foreordination. God does foresee who's going to be a believer, but the faith he foresees is the faith he himself creates. That's the big difference. Jesus says in John chapter 6, verse 37 and 44, All that the Father has given me shall come to me. No man can come to me except the Father who has sent me, who who has sent me, draw him. John chapter 1, verse 13 says, Christians are born not of blood, nor the will of the flesh. We read this earlier, or the will of man, but of God. Ephesians 2, 8, 9, for by grace you are saved, right? Through faith. It's not of yourself. It's a gift of God. Not of works, lest any man should boast. Saving faith comes from God. Acts chapter 13, verse 48 says, When the Gentiles heard, they were glad, and they glorified the word of the Lord. And as many as were ordained to eternal life believed. Salvation is ordained of God. It ultimately ends in eternal life and glory in a person's being conformed to the image of God. Christ. The Bible clearly teaches that God sovereignly chooses those who believe in him. Even in the uh, first, first Peter chapter 1 and, or verse, verse 1 and 2, it says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ to the sojourners gathered uh, throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, Bithynia, elect according to the foreknowledge of God the Father. See, we are elect by God's foreknowledge. It also includes his forelove. You say, well, what is forelove? God predetermined to love us before we were ever even born. It's the key word in this, in this verse, really, for, for no, but it includes forelove. 
And the word know is used oftentimes in Scripture speaking of a, a love relationship. In Genesis chapter 4, verse 17, it says, Cain knew his wife, and she conceived and bore Enoch. That doesn't mean that Cain knew who his wife was, <laughs> even though he did. It doesn't mean he knew what her name was, even though he did. It means that he knew her intimately. Joseph was surprised when Mary became pregnant with Jesus because he had not, what, known her yet intimately. Jesus, John 10, 27, says, My sheep hear my voice, and I, what? I know them. God told Israel, You only have I known, in Amos 3, 2. He didn't mean that he knew about the Jewish people. He knew, he meant that he had a relationship with them. See, according to Matthew chapter 7, verse 23, the Lord will someday say to unbelievers, you know what he says, right? I never what? Never knew you. Depart from me, you workers of iniquity. See, in that case, there was no predetermined love relationship God's foreknowledge means that he predetermined to love certain people. You say, well, why? I don't know. (laughs) I mean, to me, that's the wonder of salvation. Why would God love me? Why would God choose me before the foundation of the world? It's predetermined. It's foreordained. It's seen in his love. It's according to his purpose. Our salvation also stems from the fact that God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. He predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. That word translated predestinate means to appoint or to mark out beforehand. In Acts chapter 4, it's used of Christ's crucifixion. Against this holy child, Jesus, whom thou hast appointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, with the nations and the people of Israel, were gathered together to do whatever thy hand, thy counsel, determined before to be done. It's something that is marked out. It's planned ahead of time. One commentator says this, when you are entirely willing that God should be God, election will no longer trouble you. So you have to come to grips with this. The idea that God determined in advance to save people. I mean, he had a purpose, he had a plan. Predestination is God's eternal purpose to rule his universe just as he wants to rule it. God's decrees are his wise, holy, and eternal purposes that he determined beforehand. One commentator says, so just consent to let God be God. That's what you have to do. Well, Three things here in closing that this idea of God predetermining us 
for salvation, the doctrine of predestination. One commentator says this, First, the character, it teaches us the character of God, his grandeur, his wisdom, and his incomprehensibility. I mean, if you understand this, come and talk to me later, because I don't. I'll just be up front with you. I, I don't get it. I'm just telling you what the word says. Like I said, sometimes you have to check your logic at the door. But it should cause us to bow and to, to thank him for our salvation. Secondly, predestination represses the audacity of the wicked. It shows that in spite of their evil schemes, they cannot thwart God's purposes. Yeah, okay, yeah, they killed his son. But they're only doing what God predetermined that they would do anyway. And then the third thing, the main purpose of this doctrine is to comfort God's people. Because you know what? In all of our weaknesses and all of our sins... Sometimes we despair, even in our salvation. How will we ever be conformed to the image of Christ? We got issues in our life a mile long sometimes. Now you can say, well, the answer is simply this. God predestined us to be conformed to the image of his son. So you know what? He will make it happen. And if we know that God began that good work of salvation within us by giving us eternal life, then we can know that he will perfect that work, as Philippians tells us. He'll do it through Jesus. The Father will bring many of these sons to glory. We're not going to have to think about, boy, are we going to make it? Now, the truth that God set his love on us and predestined us to be conformed to his image means that our salvation does not rest on our performance. I don't know about you, but, you know, I remember times in gym class where you had to do certain things, you had to perform, and I'm just not a performing kind of guy. You know, I mean, I cringe just sitting at the piano in front of people. play. I just don't like that kind of sensation of performing for people. And I'm so thankful that I don't have to perform for my own salvation before God. That he said, you know what? No, you're secure. Because in eternity past, I set my love on you. And you know what? You probably don't even get it. You don't understand why. But it doesn't matter. Because I'm God and you're not. And you know what? Nothing can separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus. No one can snatch us out of the Father's strong hand. And with that, you know what? It's a lot better than that promise that you get in an email for $14 million. This is a promise that you can bank your life upon. And before we close in prayer, I just want to say, I don't expect you, if you're an unbeliever here today, you, maybe you don't know the Lord, you're not a Christian. Um, I don't expect you to understand this. You're probably going, what's this guy talking about? This is crazy talk. That's okay. That's okay. I mean, even as Christians, as I said, we struggle with these doctrines. You don't worry about that. That's not something you need to worry about right now. You know, you don't need to go around saying, well, I don't know if I'm elected or not. That's, that's not our point. That's not where we want to spend our time. That's not a factor that you need to be concerned with. That's God's eternal purpose to take care of. Just know this, and hear this very clearly. 
If you find in your heart a hatred of your sin, if you find in your heart an emptiness in life, if you find in your heart a desire for something better, a desire for God, a desire for righteousness, a desire for forgiveness, if you find in your heart a desire to turn from your sin and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ, then you know what? You can be sure of one thing, beloved, that your name is written in the Lamb's book of life. I guarantee it. If those desires come from a sincere heart. So work on what you know. If you come to Christ, that settles it. You were called. You were chosen. Father, we thank you for this morning. Lord, I just, I pray for grace. And in these messages, I pray that you would give us understanding. Lord, I know it's, it's... hard for us to take in all these truths and in our minds trying to make sense of them. Sometimes we walk away with more questions than we came in. But that's okay. Because you're God and we're not. Lord, I just know what the Bible says that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. There's not a person in this room that could say they're perfect. There's not a person in this room that's not in need of a Savior, of forgiveness of their own sin. And the Bible is very clear. In the New Testament there's a man who was convicted He was broken. He was at his wit's end. And he simply just cried out to you, Lord, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's a prayer that God will will hear. You don't need to understand all these doctrinal issues. There's time for that. But first and foremost, you, you need to make sure that your sins have been paid for. That you're trusting not in yourself and your own good works, but you're trusting in a Savior who loved you. And came and lived this life for 30-some years and gave up his life willingly. Died on a cross, cruel death. Was buried, was raised the third day. And God wants you to believe that with all your heart. And when you do, that transformation takes place. Split second. You're saved. Your your blinders are lifted from your eyes and you begin to see the glory of God. And you can just but fall down to your knees and thank him for his grace and his mercy and his forgiveness. Father, help us as believers to leave this place with that message on our hearts as we run into people every day that do not know you, have not heard the gospel of Christ, that we would, with all due diligence, first of all, live the life that we're called to live, and then speak the words you tell us to speak, and that we would see many come to Christ. We thank you. We praise you in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.